will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray it in the name of Jesus and all the church said. I want to begin with a a statement that we have begun just about, I'd say, 90% of the sermons with. It's this statement. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God about man, about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together. I I wish that we had a copy of uh, Brad Roach's outlines, kind of a mind map of the history of the Bible where you could see all of this. Maybe we can figure out a way to make that available to everybody. But it is a wonderful visual piece that he shared in the families class this morning to help us to see that the Bible is really about that one story. And that one story, at least in the Old Testament part of it, is going to end this morning with the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi, even though it's the last book, it is not the least of the Old Testament prophets. When I was in graduate school uh, about a a little over a decade ago, I had an Old Testament professor that made these prophets really live for me. His name was Gary Smith. And he made a statement about the dating of Malachi that has stuck with me over nearly 13, 14 years since then about really the the true purpose of Malachi's uh, uh, being in the Old Testament Bible. And the statement is this. Malachi is about the effects of secularization in the people of God. Let me say that one more time. Malachi is about the effects of secularization in the people of God. Now, secular secularization... Uh, these are words that we, we hear bandied about from time to time. You know, we know that it, it deals with, with sort of public life and a non-God life. But really, what is secularization all about? Well, I have found a, a book that was written by uh, a couple of authors within Churches of Christ, Leonard Allen, Richard Hughes, Michael Weed, back in the 1980s. They wrote a book called The Worldly Church. And in it, they have a definition of secularization or what is secular that I find really helpful. It'll be up here on the screen. And the quote is this. The loss of the sense of a transcendent God is at the very heart of the secular perspective. Secularism, after all, insists that there is nothing ultimately mysterious and that through reason and proper technique, the human mind can understand and even control all that it encounters. End of quote. Now, I think that's a pretty good definition, but it, I, I think sometimes it also helps if we have an example. Let me, and there are lots of them from popular culture. Let me give you one from an award-winning TV show called Mad Men. Uh, I, I know many of us uh, are, are familiar, at least in, in, in theory, of what this show is about. It, it is a show that revolves around the conflicted life, the conflicted world of an executive on Madison Avenue. He's, a, he's an ad guy uh, by the name of Don Draper. And he is a, a veteran of, uh, of, of war. He is cynical and he is jaded. And in the pilot of this show, uh, Tyler Braun, in his book, Why Holiness Matters, puts this, this episode as an example of the loss of holiness or that transcendence among people. And he uses this as an example when Don Draper, as the music in the background of the show is playing, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, Draper explains his life to one of the secretaries. And he says, what you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. You're born alone and you die alone and this world just drops a bunch of rules on top of you to make you forget those facts. But I never forget. I'm living like there's no tomorrow because there isn't one. End of quote. Now, in in a very extreme way, 
What Don Draper is saying for the secular point of view is this. There is no God. You're on your own. Life is tough. And in the end, you lose. That's bottom line. And believe it or not, degrees of that can enter into the life of the people that call themselves Christian. Degrees of that kind of thinking can even enter into the hearts and the minds and the souls of people who call themselves the people of God. It's, it's a religion. It's a religious life without the transcendence of a great and mighty God drawing near to us. It's religion without the oomph of the weight of the holiness of God on the hearts of His people. Malachi, the book of Malachi illustrates what happens when the religious revival of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the people are weeping at the hearing of God's Word, and and they are completely transformed because they are hearing Ezra read from God's Word, and they are completely undone emotionally by by the fact that, that God is speaking to them and that God is in their presence. Secularism is what happens when that kind of religious revival where people's lives are being changed diminishes into lip service. That is a danger in every age. And what Malachi helps us to do is to be able to understand or to identify the signs of that spiritual spiral. And there are a lot of them in this book. We're not going to be able to spend a ton of time on them this morning. But let me give you just a couple to think about. The first is this. You know that there is a sense in which spiritually you're beginning to spiral when you begin to have skepticism about the relationship that you have with God. Now, there are reasons that you can, you can, you can struggle with that relationship, and some of them are very faith-building. But when you begin to, to, to have skepticism about the validity or the reality of that relationship with God, that should be a red flag that comes up. Now, when we read the Old Testament, one of the things that we have seen over the past nine months is that God's relationship with Israel had always been about a covenant, a covenant of marriage, a covenant of family. And God had described his relationship to Israel as that that marriage or that that covenant that is made between a husband and wife. You read that in places like Hosea chapter 2. Another place in which God is speaking through Jeremiah and describing the greatness of that time of covenant in the early days of of their relationship together. uh, uh, Exodus chapter 19, when that covenant is ratified at Mount Sinai, he says, this is what it was like when it was great. And in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2, God says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a what? Bride, you loved me. As a bride, you loved me and you followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. It's, a, it's a, that time when you, know, you don't really know what's ahead of you, but you're excited because you're going through it together. I mean, you're so dedicated to each other and it doesn't matter if you're going through a land that's not sown. You're together and you love each other. I remember, you know, when Ella and I were were first married, we didn't have two nickels to rub together, but that was an exciting time. We didn't know what was ahead of us. We never thought for an instant that Brazil was going to be in our future. We thought it was going to be the country of Zimbabwe. Now that relationship between Israel and God has lost that spark. And in Malachi, now about 420 B.C., God says to His people, I have loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? 
Israel asks, okay, we hear you, God, saying that you love us, but how have you loved us? Well, going back to that marriage metaphor, you know how it goes in marriage sometimes. Everything is going well, lots of passion, lots of commitment, lots of enthusiasm, lots of fervor for that relationship. There's this excitement about not knowing what lies ahead in the future, but at least you're doing it together. Then one of the spouses begins, for one reason or another, to not function significantly in that love. And the commitment and the passion and the enthusiasm that was first there begins to slacken. And the next thing you know, that singular greatness of the covenantal relationship made before God with vows begins to take on secondary importance. And those two people are still together. They still wear the rings. They still pay the bills. They still sleep in the same bed. But they've become more like roommates than they are husband and wife. And there are other things that have all of a sudden diluted away that that passion and that commitment. There are other things that are more important, more fulfilling. The job, the hobby, the kids. And all of a sudden you realize that what you're going through are the motions of marriage. Now, stepping out of marriage for a minute and talking about a relationship with God, one one of the really struggles uh, uh, in anybody's faith, your patience, for instance, or perseverance. I mean, the, the, the cruel irony of the faith is that you never get perseverance until you persevere through something. It's the same thing with patience, the same thing with self-control. Faith, in part, involves waiting on God to act. But waiting is such a hassle. I mean, waiting is, is, is painful. And in that time of waiting, the mind begins to water, the jets cool, The things that are important turn to shades of the mundane and that inner life begins to show some of its weaknesses. And God just becomes a truth. I believe that there's a God. If you ask me while I'm doing my business, yeah, I believe that there's a God. Christianity is a great philosophical way to live a life. Yes, while I'm doing my business and my hobbies and all of this other stuff. Yeah, Christianity is a pretty good way to live, but love. Love does not describe the relationship. At the end of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, God says, you know who I look for? You know who my eyes search for? I look to the one who is humble and contrite in heart. The one that trembles at my word. At my word. And God says, I have loved you, Israel. But Israel does not tremble at that word. Israel's not trembling when God says, I've loved you. Israel responds with skepticism. You say you love us. How have you loved us? Well, the lack of that love being acknowledged is seen in sort of the next sign of that spiritual uh, uh, degradation. It's in the waning of worship. When worship begins to, to not be all that important. The second sign involved in in Malachi's time, a a lack of leadership among those priests to lead Israel into the kind of worship that recognized the greatness of God. And because of the skepticism about the relationship and the love in the first place, the people began to go through the motions of worship. And in so doing, just going through the motions, just showing up. They were on time, but they were just showing up and going through the motions. In so doing, they began to dishonor God. You'll remember all the way back in Leviticus chapter 1. One of the very first things that Leviticus talks about in terms of our relationship and relating to God. Moses says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without 
Say it. Defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of the meeting that he may be what? Accepted before the Lord. Yet Israel is ignoring the Levitical traditions about worship and sacrifice. And they're beginning to bring these unacceptable things to worship. And so Malachi chapter 1 verse 8, when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not what? Evil. And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not sad? Evil. Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. In fact, they have become so lackadaisical in their worship to God that it would be less, incredibly less hypocritical for somebody just to go in to shut the gates of the temple completely. He says in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you that would just shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you. Nor will I accept an offering from you. And you know, when worship becomes this mechanical routine to steal uh, a phrase from Elizabeth Ockmeyer, when worship becomes this mechanical routine, then it becomes so boring. We're just going through the motions. We're like ro- robots going through worship. Pick up a songbook, we put the songbook down. We pick up the Bible, we put the Bible down. We pick up the collection plate and the communion plate and we pass it down. Just like robots. And it becomes a bore. And so Malachi says in verse 13, My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. In her commentary on Malachi, Elizabeth Ockmeyer says, and I quote, God demands our life, our love, our all, but when the church fails to tell its gospel story, its worshipers bring blemish gifts to God, the, the coins and the offering plate that cost them nothing, their discards for the poor, the remnants of their time, and the grudging gifts of their talents. Worship becomes perfunctory, sometimes tiresome service, or at best, a sleepy duty, ineffective to change or touch anything in the worshipers' hearts and lives. End of quote. And so when that vertical relationship between God and His people is jammed up, and there's not that sense of love and that sense of, of, of commitment and enthusiasm, and the worship is, is waning, then don't you know that if it's going to be messed up this way, it's going to be messed up out here horizontally in these other relationships with human beings. That's the next one he talks about, the marital woes. Israel had a history of trouble with marriages. The marriages at times had been done in such a way that pagan rituals and pagan mindsets and worldviews and pagan religion had been introduced into Israel. And the covenant at Mount Sinai back in Exodus chapter 19 had been broken when husbands had begun to worship the pagan gods of their foreign wives. And although Nehemiah had addressed this issue, it had taken a turn for the worse. As Israel begins to experience marriages dissolving all over the place and with everyone. And so in chapter 2, he says in verse 14, The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. He's saying, I was there when that covenant was made. I have been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by, say it, covenant. Verse 16, I hate 
divorce. And not only there, but it's also in, in those horizontal relationships, but it's also with our treasure. You begin to see that secularistic thinking enter, and it's robbing God. From the beginning of biblical history, before there was even a law written by God and delivered by Moses to the people, there was the practice of giving a tenth or to give a tithe to the Lord in order to honor Him by showing trust in His promises. And later it became a part of the Levitical law. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And it was a way of showing trust in God. And not just in our own age, but throughout all of history, money has always been the means for humans to wield power and to manage their own kingdom. And the tithe was a way of counteracting the temptation to trust money and not God Almighty to take care of us. And then during this period of time, there's this agricultural plague that hit. And the people of Malachi, the, the people that Malachi is addressing, begin to fudge on that tithe. And Malachi asked, will a, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And the answer is in tithes and offerings. You know, there is no greater insult to a person than to say, you know, I know you. I know you, but I don't trust you. Now, in terms of a relationship with God, the world does that on a daily basis. But when the people who say they know God and the people who refer to themselves as the people of God and the ones who keep saying that Jesus saves and God is good, when the people of God do this, it blackballs God. To do that is to give God a vote of no confidence. It's secularism. It affects the nature of the relationship between God and His people. It's not marked by, by this dynamic love, but it's marked by skepticism. Does God really love me or not? It dumbs down the dynamic of their worship. It weakens the strength of their marriage covenant. It reveals what people consider to be their true treasure. You know, it just seems like it's the same story over and over and over again, doesn't it? History in many ways is reciprocal. People say all the time, we need to study history in order to not repeat it. When have we not repeated it? History is the lesson. We have to mind our heart and our mind and our soul. And it's a great sign of the love of God that He patiently works out the details of the redemption of this human project. You know, Israel from this point on would go four centuries of, of silence with the close of Malachi. Now, not for an instant did that mean that God was not active. I mean, that's the lesson of the book of Esther, right? That God is working behind the scenes. God is preparing to do a great thing, perhaps even the greatest thing in that silence. And Malachi chapter 4 closes with these words, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts. Restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And just a couple of verses before that, Malachi says in verse 2, the Son of Righteousness will rise with what? Healing in its wings. And then those four centuries pass. 
And a prophet shows up in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His name is John, but he looks a lot like Elijah. And he preached and the people came to him. They came from all over the place. They they came to him in in hordes and crowds and masses to be baptized by him in the River Jordan. And one day while he's in Jerusalem, he sees with his disciples this son of a carpenter. And he stops and he points to him and he turns to his disciples and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And after the John, this John, the Baptist, was thrown in prison, this young son of a carpenter begins his ministry. He begins going about teaching about the kingdom of God. He begins to preach to the masses. He travels up and down Israel, north and south, goes through Samaria. He's miraculously healing the people. And the crowds press around him and are all around him at all times. And there's this one crowd in Matthew chapter 9. There's one day where he's being so pressed by these crowds. And inside of this crowd is a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse, even though she had been to many doctors. And she says to herself, if only I can touch the kanaf of his talit. The kanaf of his talit. That is, the wings or the fringes on his prayer shawl that look like the, 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 the feathers on the tips of a bird's wings. If I can touch just the wings of his talit, I will be healed. And she touches it. And she is completely healed. And that Messiah, that young son of a carpenter, the Messiah, the son of righteousness, who rises with healing in his wings, not smiting, not cursing, but healing that relationship with God forever. God looks at his creation, to his creatures, to his humans. And in his human project, he says, I love you. And what do we say? Oh yeah? How have you loved us? How have you loved us? And John tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only, unique, singularly begotten Son to die on the cross and to take on our sin and to take on our judgment and to take on our punishment that whoever would believe and trust on Him would have eternal life. And eternal life where we are brought into the very presence of God and we join all of heaven in worship. Singing holy, holy, holy. To heal our, our, our marriages so that as Paul would write in Ephesians 5, that when people look at our marriages and the relationships between husbands and wives within the community of faith, they see something of the Gospel. To heal our hearts to the point that our treasure is in heaven and the way that we use our earthly money and our earthly goods and our earthly riches is just a demonstration of it. That's what God is doing about it. That's what God is doing about this mess. Is redeeming everything in Christ Jesus.
And he has talked about it and talked about it and pointed it out and, and, and talked to the prophets and the prophets talked to us about it. And we see in Christ Jesus the culmination of all of those words. It all comes down, all of history comes down to a cross on a hill far away. And a resurrection, not just a, a resuscitation. Jesus went through death, through death to the other side as first fruits, which means the promise of more fruit to come, us in faith. I, wanna, I want you to think about your worship and your relationship with God. And when we sing this next song, I want you, as, as, as uh, Daryl's reading of, of Psalm 107, right before our, our communion time together, the contemplating of the greatness of the Lord's movements among your life. And when we sing this song to praise God until it, 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 it shatters those acoustic panels above us. And for those who have never, ever, ever taken very seriously the fact that God is real, that God is not just a, a concept, that God is not just a philosophy, that God is not just some kind of an abstract way of thinking, God is not just an explanation, but God is the supreme value of the universe. And you want to give your life to Him in such a way that you are healed. Healed of all of the ways that you have devastated your own life or hurt other people or, or created dead ends for your own life. Healed of all of that. Everything that you have ever done in the past that was against Him is forgiven. And He puts that Spirit inside of you, not just to heal you, but to help you change. You know, we think so much that what we need is forgiveness, and we do. Don't, I never want to downplay forgiveness, but you know what comes on the tales of forgiveness? It's repentance. It's about change. It's about being the kind of people that God has destined us to be since the beginning of creation. And that we messed up, but are now in Christ Jesus being conformed to Him. And that can happen this morning. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If we can help you in any way, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds. Let's stand and praise God together. I heard an old...